agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government. Welcome to the Politic Guys, the place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by Ken Katkin, a professor of law at Chase Law School. Welcome back to the show, Ken. Oh, it's great to be back. It's always a lot of fun to be here. I have to say, it's particularly fun for me to be here because uh, I'm not, you know, like recovering or in, in death's doorstep. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I think the first thing that we're going to kick off with Ken is we're going to take a look and talk about Biden's trip to Europe this week. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to actually have a quick pause for an ad. And then we come back, we're going to tackle, uh, Biden's visit to Europe. So Ken on Wednesday, uh, Biden headed to Europe and kicked off uh, a series of meetings, and, and, and this isn't going to be just something we can talk about this week. It's going to, it's definitely going to be bleeding into next week, maybe in, in, in bigger part next week, because next week uh, Biden is headed to Russia, and I, I think meeting his meeting with Vladimir Putin um, is going to be a, a a big issue. But of course, this week the the note was his meeting in the United Kingdom uh, and his attempt with to kind of restore that special relationship with the UK. Uh, uh, with Boris Johnson, which is probably a, a little bit uneasy in this, in the sense that we've had the recent with the Brexit, uh, whereas there might have been a little bit more commonality um, with Trump. Uh, and I think most of the of the trip has really been overshadowed in the United States by kind of that inside baseball um, take, arguing that this is a terrible time for a trip, given the uh, the state of Biden's domestic policy. Now, I, I know that we want to uh, break down the domestic policy in a minute, but what do you think about actual visit? And, and will it be able to have any kind of meaningful traction moving forward, given given the spin that we're seeing on it in the United States? And, and, and in part, as a, as a presidential scholar, it's a little surprising. Oftentimes, presidents get a little bit additional uh, uh, coverage and power when they go overseas, in, in part because presidents have more visibility and direct command in that role uh, 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 of international relations. But in this case, it doesn't seem that that's playing out for Biden. So I'm just kind of curious, is there much to be gained here or is it all going to be subsumed, um, domestically speaking, uh, by what's happening in the Senate? Well, I would sort of break that into pieces. Um you know, the, the criticism that you're talking about is is primarily, you know, partisan criticism that I think in today's environment, um, it doesn't really matter what Biden does any day of the week, whatever he does, he's going to be subject to a lot of um, uh, partisan criticism uh, in terms of whether it's actually a good time to go. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a perfect time to go. Um, for one thing, the G7 is actually meeting, so he should go there to go to the G7 meeting. Um, for another thing, he's literally not needed in, in Washington. You know, the there's complete gridlock right now um, in the uh, in the Senate. Um, there's nothing happening legislatively. He he rightly decided that it was time to pull the plug on the the charade of uh, um, infrastructure negotiations. You know what 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 could he possibly be needed for in, in Washington right now? There's there's I think there's no better place for him to be than overseas. And finally, in terms of what he could actually accomplish, you know I don't know how much he could actually accomplish um, at these meetings. Um, 
But I don't think that's so much because of the domestic situation as, as because of the the legacy of Trump, which is mainly that our foreign partners, um, you know, I think so much trust was shattered with them um, that there's limits to um, how much um, trust uh, uh, that they would place in the U.S. or how much leadership uh, the U.S. could could um, exercise. And I think that is exacerbated probably by the fact that uh, Biden, in common with Trump, um, has as one of his uh, main um, foreign policy goals to try to generate more of a, um, a coalition against China. And I think that that's not um, something that Europe is especially interested in. So that certainly does pose a challenge in terms of getting things done. Well, you know, I, I recognize that there has been partisan barbs at Biden. But the thing that struck me that I guess my question really more, more from was when I looked at all of the major newspapers that I read on a regular basis, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, um, the Washington Post, uh, there were zero newspapers that did not put his visit completely in terms of what's happening on the domestic side. And, and I, th- I guess that's part of what surprised me in that, again, oftentimes presidents get a little bit more press. And so in this case, I'm thinking actual press, uh, not just the the kind of the barbing, uh, um, you know, partisanship that we're talking about here, but the actual press. I mean, that was clearly the frame. And I guess I was, maybe I shouldn't have been surprised by that, but, but it did a little bit surprise me, uh, given that presidents often get a little bit more latitude that there weren't those kinds of conversations that you were putting forward. Did that part of it surprise you? So kind of putting aside the, the partisan, but just, you know, the the lack of any kind of positive press even got. Again, even the New York Times, what is it? What's the whole, what's the shaping narrative is he's leaving during a domestic time. Um, and that, matter of fact, that's what his uh, press secretary responded to, um, to journalists. Well, I'm, I'm actually, when you said that, I just pulled up the New York Times' webpage, so I have it in front of me now. And the, the two main page one headlines uh, both do um, concern his um, uh, trip to, to Europe, but neither one of them mentions domestic politics. So um, the, the first headline, which is actually I was kind of relying on a little bit in what I said a few minutes mm-hmm. ago, mm-hmm. is um, America may be back in Europe, but how much has really changed? And it's mainly focusing on the challenges he's having there given the the, the uh, change attitudes about the United States that arose during the past four years. But it doesn't mention a single thing about um, domestic politics here. And then the, the other secondary headline says G7 leaders will pledge to donate one billion COVID vaccine doses. Here's mm-hmm. the latest on their meetings. So so I, th- I think that the, the, the news reporting that's actually coming out of the um, uh, uh, meetings in Europe uh, um, is, is reporting what's actually happening in Europe. There was a lot of reporting yesterday about... Uh, the uh, new Atlantic Charter that um, he signed with with Boris Johnson in, in the UK. Um, so I think some things are getting done, um, and I, I don't I don't really see that there's a downside um, to being in Europe now relative to being in America now. I, I, I let me throw that back at you. What do you think he should be doing in America if he was in America right now instead of instead of in Europe? Now in this case, I don't honestly think there's much that, that President Biden can do. The uh... U.S. I think that often there is over-reliance of expectation on what presidents can achieve. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think that's one of the one of the reasons that we have uh, more oftentimes uh, dangerous presidential actions is an attempt uh, to meet expectations that can't be met by presidents. We 
we want things to happen rapidly. We want them to happen now. Uh, and that's how we end up judging presidents. And yet that's not generally what presidents uh, can or ought to do. So in this case, um, I wouldn't actually disagree with your your underlying assessment. And so my uh, raising that point was not a uh, not intended as a critique on Biden so much as a thinking about uh, how perhaps Biden is not necessarily getting the same kind of boost that you would traditionally expect uh, in kind of that aspect. So it, it wasn't actually a critique on the Biden. OK, I see. Yeah, just on the U.S. politics, then all I would say about that is um, it's hard to get big boosts on anything right now because the the pu- public is very polarized. And uh, but his his favorability ratings do remain very high. Um, and, you know, they may not have kind of gone up very much um, because he's in Europe compared to where, where they were a week ago. But he's hovering around 60 percent favorability um, in a country that's pretty 50 50 in terms of its politics. So um, I don't I certainly don't think this is hurting him politically. No. And the, the other thing, as I wonder, is, is about I mean, well, let's let's put it this way. I mean, one of the things I'm I'm curious to see is, is that internationally, we in the United States have had, and you would put it right, this is a time where maybe trying to repair some bridges that we've had, especially with um, Western Europe. And I, I, one of the reasons for bringing up Biden's meeting uh, with Vladimir Putin for next week was, I believe that what's happening right now, now is primarily kind of a buildup to repairing those relationships for having a different kind of talk with Russia than we would have seen with Trump. Uh, and so I'd, I'd love for you to talk into that a little bit as well. Yeah, I think that's it's complex because, um, you know, I, I think that with Russia, um, some of the Western European allies, particularly Germany, um, are not at all interested in any kind of new Cold War with Russia. Um, and so um, I don't think it's going to be that easy um, for Biden to, to push them into um, starting anything like that. And in fact, it doesn't seem to me like that's actually his strategy. I think it seems to me like his strategy towards Russia is to kind of um, ignore Russia, um, try to marginalize Russia, try to kind of treat Russia as a very second rate power that doesn't merit significant attention, uh, but not to elevate it by really trying to um, round up our allies to do all kinds of things against it. And I think that's a, a realistic uh, way to, to do things, given the given the, the situation with, with Europe. And also, I, I don't think, you know, even though I think Biden personally is going to be successful at some bridge building, and he's certainly it's like it's a relief to every head of European government that Biden's in and Trump's out. But nonetheless, um, the fact that, um, you know, Trump uh, was president for four years, that that Trump or someone like him could possibly be elected again in 2024 that the U.S. doesn't seem to have even been able to um, unify enough to even do something about the January 6th insurrection. I think all of these things um, contribute to uh, um, really outweigh um, the, the relief that Europeans will feel that Biden is in office and make them feel like they, they need to chart a more independent course. They can't go back to that American century of just being reliant on American leadership for everything. America has become too unreliable. And so I think they're, you know, they're, they're happy that he's in and they're, they're hoping that they can work with him. But I don't think they're just going to um, follow American leadership on things that aren't in their own interest anymore. That's kind of a final follow up there. Do you think that kind of the bipartisan 
anti-China policy that we've seen and the bill that we've seen come out of uh, out of the House and the Senate is in part kind of hanging over the trip to Europe and what could or could not be done there. Yeah, he's not going to accomplish that much on China. And I don't know that he's even going to try that hard to accomplish that much on China. Uh, the, 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 the idea that, you know, then this is really one of the areas, um, Afghanistan being the other, I think, where the Trump foreign, the Biden foreign policy is the same as the Trump foreign policy. Um, you know, I think the, the, the U.S. kind of, you know, really wanted to ratchet up um, some kind of hostility with China as China both um, eclipses the U.S. as being the, the most important country in the world and also, um, you know, does some things that are somewhat threatening to U.S. interests. Um, I think that's that's more of an issue for the United States than for Europe. And I think, you know, Europe is, you know, they're not the most important country in the world. So they're not as caught up in the competition about whether it's going to be the U.S. or whether it's going to be America. They they get along a little you mean, better. With you mean China. the U.S. China? Oh, U.S. or China. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Thank you. Yeah, that, that, you know, the U.S. doesn't want to lose its world primacy to China. Um, but that's more of an issue for the U.S. than for Europe. Europe doesn't have that primacy anyhow. Um, Europe wants to, um, you know, trade with um, China, and they do trade a lot with China. I just think that they don't want to get swept up in any kind of new Cold War, and and I think Biden's realistic enough about that um, that he isn't really going to press very hard. I think this is more like kind of a um, this visit on that is more about just trying to have conversations with Europe and see what kinds of uh, measures they might be open to going forward. But I, I don't think he's going to come back with any kind of actual accomplishments on China. Well, why don't we pause here just for a minute? Because what I want to do, Ken, is to move to the domestic side uh, and specifically talk a little bit about the ending of the infrastructure talks. And as a matter of fact, Thursday's last minute, uh, 10 senator uh, bipartisan proposal. But before we do that, we're going to have a brief uh, break. And when we come back, Ken, we'll take a look at the, uh, the infrastructure deal. So Ken, uh, the infrastructure um, deal has, I mean, it has gone through something this week. So we, before leaving for Europe, Biden ended talks um, with Senator Shelley, Capitol, the West Virginia senator and the primary Republican negotiator. And then also this week, Manchin dropped a couple of bombs. One, uh, he openly stated that he opposed changing any kind of filibuster rules. And then secondly, in a big editorial, said he was against the For the People Act. Uh, now, that's just struck some people as a bit ironic since he had actually co-sponsored a 2019 version of the bill. Um, but nevertheless, this didn't look good for Democrats' ability to get things done. Now, some things have happened. Congress, of course, passed the American Jobs Plan, for example, and then again, late Thursday evening, a group of 10 Republican and Democratic senators pushed forward a compromise $1 trillion infrastructure bill. So, Ken, what do you think? Let's just start by saying, where do you see the state of the domestic Biden plan? And then I have some specific questions and thoughts uh, as we kind of think about Manchin. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I have to say all of the developments of the past week or two don't fundamentally change the analysis that you and I talked about three or four weeks ago. In my mind, mm -hmm. I, I think that um, there's this um, there's these two tracks where um, uh, Biden is hoping um, and certainly Manchin is forcing his hand on this hope that um, as much as possible can be passed on a bipartisan basis. 
Um, and even before, even a month ago, there were a handful of chunks of this that were already passed on a bipartisan basis, like the the, the water um, uh, infrastructure component of it was already passed on a bipartisan basis. Um, so I, I think to the extent that anything can be passed on a bipartisan basis, th that's being pursued. Um, but Schumer has continued to say consistently, and he did say it again yesterday, that the Dems are proceeding on two tracks and that there's going to be bipartisan uh, components of it. And there's going to be um, a component of it that's done on reconciliation on a partisan basis. And uh, I, I tend to think that um, although this week looked like kind of a setback for the Biden administration, I, I think that's illusory. I, I think, you know, pretty much we're on track for most of the Biden plan to pass. And I think um, Manchin, you know, is looking primarily for political cover. Um, I think he's he's primarily concerned you know, that in, in West Virginia, um, he needs to be seen as someone who is working with Republicans. And to the extent that he can actually, you know, pull together groups, and he must have played a key role in that group of 10 that, that came together uh, yesterday, um, and, and get things done on a bipartisan basis, that's going to look very good for him. But ultimately, I do think he's going to give his vote to the um, Dems on, on whatever's left over to be done in reconciliation uh, as well on the spending side. Now, probably not on the For the People Act, which you mentioned, but um, but I, but the, the spending side stuff can all be done on reconciliation. The parliamentarian has already ruled that. So that could be done on a partisan basis without changing the filibuster rule. Well, as a matter of fact, if we go back uh, four weeks, as you had noted, one of the positions that you had took was that you thought that Democrats thought that Biden should take the point of bipartisanship sense of saying, here's an opportunity to do, to become part of our bill but we're not going to fundamentally change what we're doing moving forward. Uh, do you still see that as being so when you talk about Schumer and, and the ability to get Manchin on board with reconciliation, do you still see that as being uh, the, the kind of the, the ultimate bipartisanship in that sense, Ken? Yeah, yeah, that's what I think is coming. Now, I'm not saying that the entire four trillion bill is going to get through. You know, it could be less, but I, I think we're going to see um, – you know, three, two to three trillion actually coming through and Manchin voting for all of it. Um, so, yeah, I fundamentally think that's where we are, that that, that um, all of this is coming um, and some parts of it may come um, through ordinary regular order on a bipartisan basis and, and get enacted with a, a filibuster proof majority, uh, including Republican votes. Um, but I think the majority of the Biden proposals are not going to get enacted that way, but they're going to get enacted anyhow. I, I think that's all the same as three or four weeks ago. So now I want to talk about one particular aspect of the passing, because again, you know, Manchin uh, and, 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 and increasingly maybe one or two other Democratic senators uh, have kind of taken on that centrist role or that switch role. I know there's a lot of different terms for that. Uh, but I know that, that that this kind of breaking with the Democratic agenda, for example, on the uh, For the People Act, ha has has led to a lot of hand wring on the left against Manchin and others. And I, I was curious about your take on something that I have been kind of pondering and thinking about in terms of passing these bills. It seems to me a little bit ironic, the desire for Democrats to want all of the Democrats to completely go along with the singular uh, agenda, because isn't that kind of precisely what Democrats have been railing against on the Republican side of the aisle, effectively? Uh, the inability to have any space in the Republican Party means that you have to go along with the craziest uh, crazies who hold things together. 
Uh, and oftentimes they have held up, I think rightfully so, individuals like Romney, uh, who have in some places uh, broken with the party. But in this case, it seems like Manchin is simply kind of getting all of the ire uh, of the Democratic Party for kind of doing precisely the thing that a Republican would get points for. Uh, why do you think that's the case? I mean, for me, it seems like effectively what Dems say, well, is if we're doing it, it must be right, moral and correct. And if you don't go along, well, then obviously you're the, you know, you're, you're, you're breaking the team. But isn't that the same kind of dangerous thinking that we, we had in the Republican Party? I wouldn't look at it that way, although I also don't criticize Manchin for any of this. So um, let me let me sort of break that in pieces. Um, first, you know, with Manchin, um, I'm uh, very happy with Manchin. I'm I'm not um, angry at him. So um, my, my view is that he's a, um, a Democrat who's been elected in West Virginia, which is a, a state that um, Trump won by nearly 40 points. And uh he does go along with the Democratic agenda um, at least half the time, probably more frequently than not. Um, and also uh, because he's there, that's the reason that Chuck Schumer is the majority leader. If, if Manchin wasn't there, there'd be a Republican in that seat and Mitch McConnell would be the majority leader. So as a Democrat, I, I feel like I owe a great debt of uh, gratitude to Joe Manchin for actually um, discovering a politics that allows him to hold on to that seat in West Virginia and, and have that be a seat that at least often is available um, to vote with the Dems. So I've, I've got nothing against Joe Manchin. I'm not even sure that um, all the criticism uh, that, that against him that, that, that you've noted um, is is actually um, isn't something that he courts. Right. This may all be somewhat performative. Right. It, it may it may benefit him in West Virginia to be perceived as the maverick that, that he is, as the bipartisan guy that he is. And so, you know, when you've got, you know, the, the Chuck Schumers and the uh, Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez's of, of the world, you know, really excoriating him to some extent, um, that may not be something he's he's uh, upset by. That may be something he's very much um, feeling pleased. That may be the purpose of, of his current position is to draw that kind of criticism so that he can maintain credibility with a certain cadre of um, West so Virginia you, voters. So if I hear you right. Are you suggesting maybe that the, the the others are in on it or is he just happy about it? You know, I, I think Schumer's in on it. Uh, I'm not going to go. I don't know. I don't think he consults with AOC. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think Schumer's in on it. Yeah, I think Schumer. Um, and I see I, you do see this a lot on the Republican side as well, where um, I think, you know, this group of five, um, which doesn't actually include McConnell, the, the group of five Republican senators who Portman and, and Murkowski and, and Collins, um, Romney, uh, and I can't remember the fifth, maybe Cassidy was the fifth, um, that, that just negotiated on the spending bill. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they only did that because McConnell said that would be fine for them to do that, I'm sure. So even though McConnell doesn't join it and reserves the right to publicly criticize what they've negotiated, you know, he certainly authorized them to go ahead and, and, and make those negotiations. So I think there's always some coordination between um, um, leadership and um, um, loyal members who are going to be trying to um, uh, take on kind of bipartisan roles. Um, so, I, yeah, I do definitely think that's coordinated with Schumer. Um, and I think the, um, you know, in the end, um, everybody in the Democratic Party benefits, both both Schumer and Manchin benefit. Um, if some uh, of, of these um, components of this bill um, can actually be passed on a bipartisan basis, um, while the rest are nonetheless passed on a partisan basis. Now, in terms of the groupthink thing, which was the other part of your question, yeah. here's where I actually think there's a difference. Um, 
I don't think that um, I, I think it's good for me individual members um, to have their own um, views and agendas, um, either because of where they've positioned themselves on the left right axis within their party cohort um, or even just because of unique factors in their states. I think that's fine. You know, if most Democrats are for gun control and mansions against gun control because people in West Virginia are against gun control. I think that's good. I think the the the, the senators should stick up for um, the, the views of their own constituents, which may sometimes differ from that of their party. On these particular issues, and you mentioned this already, not only not only the For the People Act, but also the infrastructure bill. Manchin's not actually against the substance of anything in these bills. There's nothing in these bills he's against the substance of. Um, so that's a little different, I think. You know, when when all these Republicans vote against, say, a January sixth commission. Um, it's not because they're actually against a January 6th commission. Um, it's, it's just because they're, they're supposed to maintain um, 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 not break ranks. Right. They've been instructed to vote that way. And in Manchin's case, you know, I do think the reason I'm confident he'll end up voting, at least for the full um, infrastructure bill, is that he's basically for it and his constituents are basically for it. And he's not going to pay a political price in West Virginia for voting to build a lot of infrastructure in West Virginia and to to give more money for people who work in elder care in West Virginia and, and things like that. These are going to be po politically beneficial positions for him. And he's certainly going to vote for them. It's just that I think he's he's going through all these theatrics because um, people in West Virginia don't want to see him always uh, um, um, immediately just doing whatever Schumer says. And so he's asserting some independence in a kind of performative way, I think. Well, I guess okay, I want to take each of those a little bit because I, I was genuinely kind of curious about how you'd answer that. Now, on the performance side, I want to start there uh, because I I, uh, I can see and I, I have thought about that in those terms. Well, do you worry, though? I, mean, I'll, I worry that the kinds of theater the kinds of communication that we use uh, in the more contemporary Congress leads to particularly poor outcomes and connections between uh, voters, members of Congress, and the understanding of what actually is happening in Congress. And so I wonder if this idea of needing to have the political theater in this way, does that bother you? And, and, and do you see a potential worry there uh, for, for, for that kind of theater. Well, it would bother me more if it, it, it always produced gridlock. And I think it do, does too frequently produce gridlock, but in, in a case like this, where, um, I actually don't believe it's producing gridlock. I, I truly believe the Biden spending plan is going to get enacted. Um, and, and not only that, but in terms of the delays, I don't think the delays are actually caused by, um, this, this, this perform this public performance. I think, the public performance um, that, that Manchin and, and Cinema um, are, are kind of engaging in right now um, is just taking advantage of the opportunity um, that there's a lot of time. Um, and I know it doesn't feel like there's a lot of time. There's a lot of drum banging on the Democratic side. You know, let's just get this done. Well, we need to move on a, on, a, on a partisan basis through reconciliation. We need to get this done. But I think in reality, um, it, 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 it takes time not only because of the politics of it, but because of the um, legislative process here where, you know, unlike the COVID stimulus bills that were quickly enacted, relatively quickly enacted, um, those bills were simply dumping money into existing programs. Um, but what the, the Biden plan now is doing is actually creating a lot of new programs and creating a lot of new programs um, involves serious legislating. And if, if, if they're going to spend, you know, 
three or four trillion dollars, a lot of which is going to go into entirely new programs, then those programs have to be thought about. They have to be designed. People have to write down the code. People have to make sure that the code actually says what they're hoping it will say. They have to keep thinking about whether they're doing it right. So even though I think these negotiations are happening only within the Democrats and, and aren't really bipartisan, um, I don't think they can be done as quickly as some people think. And and Pelosi, even, you know, who probably can get the votes out of the House whenever she wants to, she back in January said sometime around July or August, you know, we'll, we'll pass this legislation. And I think that timeline was actually based on the fact that it would be impossible to come in and write this much legislation um, in less than that much time. So um, it's it will really be an unprecedented amount of actual writing of legislative code and thinking through new new uh, programs for government. And so um, I, I actually think that's the true cause of the delay. And so the the looked at in that context, I, I think um, if, if Manchin wants to say you know publicly you know this whole time, well you know the reason I'm slowing things down is that I'm holding out for better and better um, uh, part bipartisanship. Um, I, I have no problem with that. I'm going to ask you a little bit of a follow-up to that because I had a, a second part to that, and then we'll have to move on, so we'll have to go quickly. But uh, So when you talk about that, you know, there's kind of the, the face of it is, well, you have the political theater, but the, the underlying reason the political theater doesn't bother you is the fact that actual legislating process uh, needs to get done. And it's a slow process, as you point out, right? So you even note uh, Pelosi's comments about how much time that's going to take forward. But by having the theater, don't we actually then take the center stage away from real process, which is the slow thinking about spending a big bunch of money and on new things at this point and the effects and the actual effects of what those particular policies and those vehicles for those monies will be and instead place it on the, uh, the, 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 the meaningless theater, if the analysis here is right, in a way, uh, it's, it's kind of like a, the song and dance. And so the more of the political theater we have, don't we just take that much more of the important attention away from what we would hope we could slowly educate and move voters towards thinking about more, which would be the actual policies uh, that are being written and worked on? What do you, so what do you think about that? No, I, I, I think it's a good point in general that you just made, but actually not in this particular case, because um, in, in, in general, I think it would be nice if when the public um, was following what's going on in Congress, they, they could actually follow um, substantive uh, discussions going on in Congress. So I, I completely agree with your general point. But I think the, 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 the difficulties right here are that um, this legislation really is going to be more ambitious um, than almost any legislation that we've seen in 50 years. And um, so there's a brainstorming stage. Um, and, and that's that's where uh, we still are. And, and I think it's not, um, you know, there's that old phrase about, you know, um, making legislation is like making sausage. You know, you don't want to <laughs> look too closely at that process. I think we're still at that stage right now where it's not ready for public consumption yet. And, and public public consumption would actually be misleading. Right. If, 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 if within the Democratic caucus, the, 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 the insiders are kind of thinking through, you know, what do we really want to have in this bill? Um, and, and they're thinking of, you know, what could work, what couldn't work, what would the public like, what would the public not like? And they're not at the stage yet where they have something to present. Um, then I, I think it's primarily would be a harmful process that would um, draw, you know, un unwarranted criticism of ideas that never were going to make it into the bill anyhow. Um, to, um, to to present all that too early to the general public. I think we're definitely still 
in the behind closed doors stage. And that once the legislation is drafted and introduced, that's when there'll be plenty of time for the public um, input that, that you're talking about. And, and, and it will be beneficial at that stage. So then I just want to quickly, because I wasn't expecting that follow up to ask what was going to be my second question in response to your original answer. And one of the things that you had uh, had said there effectively, in the case of Manchin, he's representing his district. He's doing his kind of Mayhewian, um, uh, uh, or fin- uh, sorry, Finnoian. Finno was the one who argued that you're, you you work for your uh, your district in that way in the political science scholarship. Um, you know that, that that's what makes that kind of unique. And then you said, well, well, when you compare that to say Republicans voting against the January sixth commission, where that's obviously uh, just a party line vote. So I want to push on that a little bit. Because, I mean, if you take a look, and it doesn't make me happy to be able to say this, but if you take a look uh, at many of uh, states and districts and Republicans' position, uh, it's that they think that that's all a bunch of uh, hooey. Um, So why couldn't it be the case, problematic though it is, uh, that one of the reasons you see Republicans voting the way they are is, is no different than Manchin, that is, that they're representing a, 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 a constituency uh, who thinks that, that, that there shouldn't be uh, a commission. So h- how do you bifurcate between okay. those two? Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't, you brought up a different issue I wasn't even thinking about. So um, yeah, the, the uh, and so my example wasn't perfect because I wasn't thinking along the lines you just asked, but uh, the, um, uh, I, the, the difference in my mind, which has nothing to do with anything I said before, okay. is um, uh, um, that... Um, these Republican senators know that they're lying to their own constituents, um, you know, when they tell them that, um, you know, so the, so the, the, there's a sort of feedback loop between um, the, the Trump messaging, which has been picked up by some of the um, Republican members of Congress, um, and then the way they end up voting, where, you know, there was an actual attempt by, by Trump to engage in a violent insurrection and overthrow um, the, the electoral count. And the, these senators know that. Um, but but Trump, um, you know, lies about it publicly, lies about the fact that he lost the election. And these senators then knowingly lie also to support his lies. And then that influences the public opinion that then gets challenged back to them. Um, and, and then they vote in that way. So I, I, there, I think the reason I criticize that is not because they're voting the way their constituents want them to, but rather because they're playing a role in shaping their constituents' desires by lying to their constituents rather than telling the truth to their constituents. And that's a completely different issue than what I was intending to talk about, which is um, just that Manchin, I I think he's right to go against the Democratic line on gun control, because I think that's not something where he's lying to his constituents or they're lying to him. They have different preferences on gun control than than most Democratic constituents have. And so I don't think you're going to see gun control legislation passing, despite the horrific um, spate of shootings recently. Um, because there's not enough Democratic votes to do it, because Manchin, I think, is rightly aligned with his own constituents. But all I'm saying on the st- spending, and this is re- all I really meant to say, is that his constituents are actually for the spending. So there's no there's no reason for him not to vote for it. OK, well, you know, sometime maybe we'll have to come back and, and circle around. I think I, one of the things that I'm, I'm kind of maybe driving at too circuitously is to say that I worry that the kind of political theater that you're positing for like the Schumer to Mansion is, while degrees different from the kind of feedback loop of the January 6th uh, insurrection, on that spectrum in a way 
that worries me in the sense that it it um the the as as you move forward it continue to move in that direction and so that's why i was interested in kind of following back around for that but i recognize that's big that's a big big topic topic. there before we leave it because i think now i see where you're going it's a very interesting discussion i hope we'll fully have this discussion on a different show but uh one question i'd ask to you to think about is um, let's turn the clock back about 70 years so uh dwight d eisenhower uh wants when he's president wants to build an interstate highway system and clearly wants to build it primarily for purposes of um both the um, immediate fiscal benefit that the process of building it will, will give to the country in terms of lots of jobs and things like that, and also for the long-term commercial benefits of having it. But he also is up against all these hawks, mainly in his deficit hawks, mainly in his own party and tax hawks. So it becomes don't want to um, have that kind of you – know, yeah. So so he sells it as being, well, we need this for civil defense so we can – We can, can land um, planes. We, we, we can land planes. We yeah. can move troops quickly around the country. If, if, if the Japanese would have succeeded in invading the West Coast, we'd want for all the troops in the whole country to have been able to drive quickly to the West Coast and things like that. He knew for every minute of that 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 wasn't the primary purpose of, of building the interstate highways. Um, and I guess my, my take on that is if, if that's what he needed to do to sell it and he knew it was in the best interest of the country – that's more or less okay. And that's kind of the way I'm thinking about this mansion thing. But I wonder what you think about Eisenhower using that rhetorical strategy to get the interstates built. In all honesty, I have long been uncomfortable, although I recognize the political necessity at times um, of the ends justifying the means mechanism. And because again, what worries me about it is that if we consistently do it repeatedly, in other words, you think of an institutional system and where we do it over and over again. So I kind of like that you wound the clock back 70 years, right? You know, I don't know if any one of these particularistic instances in and of itself harms something, and you probably get a lot of good out of that particular moment, but does it end up kind of corrupting the system little bits at a time? So, you know, in my thinking, one of the big pieces of presidential Uh, the presidential uh, scholarship is the idea that presidents are not just bound by the institutional structure, the outset of anything. As a matter of fact, no institution is, but rather by the precedents that build up over time. And so you have to cumulatively understand and think about those precedents and little movements in each presidency oftentimes don't have immediate impacts 70 or 80 years ago, but you begin to see potential outcomes of them as they are built upon slowly four-year cycles at a time. So when you talk about something like Eisenhower, I think oftentimes the hope is to be able to say, well, I recognize there was a need. Dwight Eisenhower had to do what he had to do. And so he ends justify the means. But he also creates a presidential precedent. And that presidential precedent is then built upon by future presidents. They, presidents don't start from a blank slate. They're starting from that that pile of precedents. And I think we oftentimes, because we're just kind of focused on the theater of the moment, we don't ask ourselves the important question, which is, in what small ways am I adding to or detracting from that pile of precedents? And so, again, I kind of like that you roll it back 70 years because I wonder Okay, you use uh, the ends justify the means for a good purpose, but as we continue to use it for more and more expansive purposes and more and more often, as that becomes more a part of the arsenal of the presidency um, to get things done, do we end up with institutional structures that can't contain a Trump? And, and that 
is partially my worry. So I, I hear what you're getting at, but I, my oftentimes worry is, is that in isolation, we do things that we actually would not want to see piled up collectively. And then we're shocked when we see the effects of having piled up those small precedents uh, into a larger edifice of precedents, plural. Yeah. Um, last, if I say last thing, then I know you want to move on to other topics. But I, I certainly don't advocate that the the ends uh, justify the means as as a general rule. Oh, of course uh, not. I yeah, didn't yeah, mean to yeah, suggest yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I generally think it doesn't. But um, in this one kind of particular instance, when we're talking about public political strategies for getting legislation passed, um, the problem is that um, some of the some of the um, best and most impactful and, and and most publicly beneficial legislation is more complex then um, the, the, the general public is really going to um, put the time or attention into fully understanding. So there, there, there has to be some kind of rhetorical strategies, which in some ways at best are going to oversimplify um, or, or more commonly are going to somewhat mislead. But um, I, I think that those are inevitable um, uh, um, uh, incidents of um, moving uh, big, complex legislation. Um, and so I, I don't think what um, Eisenhower did was completely irresponsible. I think it was, um, you know, a way of uh, getting across, you know, one of the benefits that the interstate highway system would in fact bring. You know, now it wasn't the primary benefit that was motivating the enactment of the um, interstate highway system, but but we do see troops driving down the interstate highways sometimes. You know, it, that is something that's mm-hmm. possible because we have it. So so I, I don't I don't think he was lying. I think he was just focusing on something that may have been a, a, a minor benefit uh, of a program that was really being um, adopted for other other primary means and, and, and selling that. And I think that doesn't rely on saying, well, the, the, the ends justify the means more than saying, I think what I mean to say is that I think that's a permissible and perhaps inevitable means that's not as bad as it might seem, you know, when you're trying to pr- pr- present com- complex information to the public for, uh, about legislation that actually will benefit the public. Well, and you know, it's interesting that you put it that way, because in some ways I would agree with with part of what you say there when you talk about some of the complexities of the public understanding uh, particularly complex legislation. This is one of the reasons, you know, we've had some space between us before over, uh, matter of fact, a few weeks ago when we were talking about, is it a bug or is it a feature to have not purely democratic elements in a political institution system, right? And, and, and you know, we had, we had that conversation the last time we did the show. And, and although it wasn't the uh, it wasn't the primary point of our conversation, there was some space between us in that you thought there ought to be some additional democracy. And I, I thought that, 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 that some of that kind of uh, Republican institutional non-democracy is the feature, not the bug. And, and we chatted about that. And I think right here landed precisely on the issue of why uh, having fuller democracy can lead to not de- desirous outcomes is is that you then get into these circumstances where you are having to, in order to get right things done, uh, because you've created a system that is solely uh, popular, uh, you, you you create negative. <laughs> in other words, you can't get things done because people can't quite understand what it is. I think that, in fact, is genius of a Republican system, which is heavily based on uh, voting and people input, but not completely based on it, precisely so that we can mitigate that kind of need to have the uh, 
one example being this kind of ends justifying the means, this the inability of the public to understand these kinds of complex things. Maybe they can't in some kind of instances. And so we have institutional systems designed so that they aren't always the only mechanism for that. I mean, would you agree with me a little bit? I'm curious. I'm honestly, that's an honest question. Yeah, yeah, but but I I, I think that the the I don't see this as a huge space between us actually because um, you know I, I do agree with what you just said. Um, the thing is, I, I would probably distinguish between policy specification and policy implementation here, right? So to me, um, the, the the general policy that that Biden is promoting on spending um, has bona fide um, uh, majoritarian democratic legitimacy. Most Americans, and we're seeing numbers as high as seventy percent now, um, want to see massive spending on infrastructure right now that will create jobs, that will improve infrastructure. And those numbers stay well into the majority range, even when you do include all the stuff like counting elder care as infrastructure and things like that. So I think that people can understand, you know, do we want the government spending money on this? Do we want the government raising taxes on corporations? Do we want the taxes raising, uh, we want the government raising tax on people who make over 400,000? Those kind of questions the public can understand. And, and I'd like to see the government more responsive to public preferences. Now, the implementation questions of, you know, what kind of programs do you need to create to actually spend trillions of dollars? And, you know, how should that money be allocated? That's where I think you're getting beyond the ability of um, the public to, you know, have meaningful um, supervision over how government goes about doing that. So I would like to see government, you know, more responsive to the, the general preferences of the public, which I think is really what, what we talked about a few weeks ago, um, and not have built-in structures that can create permanent minority rule. Um, but on the other hand, I don't think, um, you know, every level of implementation, um, that, it, that it would be realistic in the nature of things to think about how responsive could that be to public opinion. Well, that actually is a perfect transition for talking a little bit about thinking about a little on inflation and what the public actually knows. But before we get to that, Ken, we're going to take a brief break. We're going to come back. We're going to kind of investigate what you're talking about a little bit closer and talk a little bit uh, about rep uh, reports of inflation uh, this week. Everyone deserves nice things, but with all the markups in traditional luxury retail, high-quality goods can be awfully expensive. Quince is different. They're a one-stop shop for essential products with low design costs. They've got tees, hoodies, loungewear, pants and shorts, blouses, dresses, skirts. I mean, unless you're a nudist, they've got something for you. And you know, even if you are clothing optional, they've got home accessories, bedding, bath, decor, all sorts of good stuff. Quince finds the best factories and only partners with those committed to the highest production standards, fair wages, safety, and sustainability, which is particularly a big deal to me. And because Quince is shipping directly to you with no agents, stores, or other middlemen, you get great 100% factory direct prices on everything. I mean, I've been desperately in need of some new t-shirts, and I was really impressed by the price and quality of their organic Pima cotton selection. And my bath towels, honestly, are looking pretty ratty, too. So Quince's great prices on high-quality Turkish bath towels, they, they really caught my eye. Quality shouldn't be a luxury. You deserve it. So try Quince today. Get free shipping and 365-day free returns by going to onequince.com slash politicsguys. Many of their collections sell out immediately, so don't wait. You can save hundreds of dollars on clothing and accessories by going to onequince.com slash politicsguys. That's O-N-E-Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash politicsguys. 
So, Ken, uh, we want to get back. You, before the break, you had had kind of, I think, a really great segue. You didn't realize at the time, maybe, but yeah, I think you had this really wonderful segue where you're talking about most people understand and know that they want spending uh, and that the actual space between uh, is over what ought to be spent on. I'm not sure that I entirely agree. Uh, so let me kind of set that up, though. Um, one of the other big stories this week was, and this is something that we had talked about a couple, uh, four weeks ago, inflation is ticking much higher uh, than had been anticipated. Now, I don't often tout my own predictive abilities, but I will say that we had a couple of shows where I suggested that that was in fact going to be the case and continue to be the case, at least term. Uh, and it, it, it appears to be outlets as wide as NPR, routers in the Wall Street Journal, uh, this week have been uh, reporting on it. Part of this, of course, is the pent-up demand uh, combined with not enough things being produced. Oftentimes, this all heads back to computer chips. Everything from your car needs these chips. But despite Yellen this past week arguing that it might be temporary, the 5% incre- uh, uh, inflationary increase uh, for the 12-month period ending in May was the absolute highest it's been since 2008. And I think there's really absolutely no question that part of this most recent inflation is due to government spending and borrowing. Now, so while the precise magnitude can can be difficult to matter, you know, other factors, of course, play in on inflation as well. It's simple economic markets, economic tells us the more of something there is, the lower its value. And in the United States this past year and last year, uh, we printed money at one of the fastest rates ever. We poured more money in the economy than we ever had. So should we really be surprised, I ask, uh, that we see acceleration increase, uh, inflation increase, accelerated pre- uh, uh, rate? As a matter of fact, I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb here and say, I think Yellen is wrong. I don't think inflation is going to decrease because I think there's larger underlying factors, just the pent-up demand uh, that are pushing it a little bit higher. Uh, and inflation rates will continue to rise. And, and this kind of gets back into the infrastructure bill, I think if we pour another $4 billion into the uh, economy, this is unprecedented amounts of spending. We're going to see that inflation continuing into 2022 and probably 2023, again, depending on what actually gets passed. So, uh, And it also depends on how much we pay or don't pay for it in taxes, something else that we've talked about on earlier shows, um, that will then both change and increase inflation and inflationary policies. So... Here's an example, Ken, where you say a lot of people want spending, and you're not wrong, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not going to argue with those, uh, but people also don't want higher prices for their overall goods, and yet these two things go hand in hand. But I don't know if everybody quite always understands that. And so, what do you think about you know as, as we've kind of been taking on that question of representation, but at the same time thinking about uh, infrastructure, thinking about inflation, thinking about spending? What do you think about that? Yeah, well, first, um, you know, I also predicted inflation. So you and I agreed on that prediction. That was, in fact, I, it, was just, I think, it was different rates. That, that was where we disagreed only. Yes, you're right. I don't even think we disagreed on that. I thought there'd be high inflation. Um, in fact, I, I remembered our argument being um, that you thought our children would have to pay for all this debt. And, and I, I actually said our children will never have to pay for all this debt. It'll be paid for in the short run through inflation. Um, so I think we're both on the same page, actually, about inflation. However, I... I um, would insist that even if it continues at 5% per, per year for a while, which would be relatively high, 
um, that that's well worth it um, for for the kinds of benefits that people are getting. Um, most most um, Americans right now um, got more than that as a percentage of their income back um, just in the in the stimulus payments that they got the last couple of years. So you know if if somebody um, uh, um, is handed um, you know say say uh, more than five percent of their income in cash and then told that um, every every everything's going to cost five percent more now. You know, th those people are out out ahead. Um, I would also say, you know, I just looked when you mentioned the five percent figure at my own uh, 401k because um, some some people would say, well, this is really going to be paid for the most by savers because people who've saved a bunch of money, you know, the, the value of that money is eroding away. And uh, I noticed that from January one to May 31, um, my rate of return in my 401k was seven point two one percent. So that's, again, more than the five percent. So. Um, the, the, the general um, um, uh, expansion of the economy that's happened as a result of all this um, spending, I think, has been good for people, at least for people who've saved in stock retirement funds. Um, and, and the indications are that real estate is going up as well. So um, a lot of people who do actually have money saved and invested are, are not being harmed um, so much by, by this inflation. So I, I de definitely think the benefits will outweigh the costs for some time. Um, if, if spending at the current rate um, continues to provide benefits to people that it has been over the last year, um, even if inflation continues at 5%. Um, on the other hand, I, I don't think there's much chance inflation could continue at 5%. And Janet, Janet Yellen's um, very much in the mainstream of uh, economic thinking here um, when, when she points out that um, there's a lot of other factors going on in the last month or two besides um, uh, a lot of stimulus spending. And uh, the primary thing being that um, the, the the pandemic um, is suddenly under control, and uh, um, lot there's just tons of pent up demand to to spend on all kinds of things, and there's still um, supply chain problems uh, because of the pandemic. So I think those those kinds of issues, which must be contributing to inflation, um, are very short term. Now government um, deficits can also contribute to inflation, but I don't think they're nearly the sole factor going into the current five percent that we're seeing. Um, and the last piece of this is that the, the Biden plan, of course, does not continue the deficit spending that we've seen over the past year, beginning with the Trump stimuluses. It is more paid for by by not fully paid for, but but more paid for by tax increases um, than any of the recent spending has been. And so um, the the tax increases. Um, should go quite a ways against um, um, uh, increasing the money supply in the way that, that you've, that you've uh, noted has happened uh, over the past year. Because it's not completely covered. So you're right, it's more covered. Uh, but because you're already increasing on a historic amount of debt, it seems unlikely. And the reason I'll actually put on this prediction is you talk about Yellen in the mainstream. And in fact, she is. Uh, but when you go back to 2008, we had a different... <laughs> arguing that things from that mainstream economic point of view were going to be fine. And once again, it was wrong in part because they hadn't looked at what classical uh, economic uh, uh, scholars look at. So I recognize that the, a variant of the mainstream, um, but the classical guys got it right uh, in 2008 and the mainstream guys got it wrong. So in your answer, even there, I hear once again, the, well, we need to listen to the mainstream guys who have consistently gotten wrong, uh, the market fluctuation effects of, uh, spending. And so I think that your call there to say, well, 5% is temporary, despite the fact that we're still going to be, we've already increased again, inflation is always a 
lagged a variable. It's predicting the past. So we haven't baked in what would happen. So the idea that you're having less deficit spending on top of already a bunch of deficit spending doesn't that's somehow going to temper uh, the inflationary policy there. So what do you think about that? Because I, I, w- I was interested in 2008. I was curious about what you'd say about Yellen, because again, it was the classical economists who had that one right. Um, you know that. Well, yeah, I would not agree with that analysis at all. Um, I, I think the, the only problem with the spending in, in 2009 was that there was only about one third as much of it as there should have been. Um, and that actually caused the recovery to, to lag for like a decade. Um, if, if the government would have engaged in anywhere near the level of spending in 2009 that it did um, engage in in um, uh, uh, 2020 or late 2019 uh, or 2020, that um, it would have been much, much better for the country. And the, the um, you would know, have been even better would have been to not have the inflationary housing policies that we did that that kind of triggered <laughs> You know, oh, no, that's that's completely debunked, Trey. The, the, the housing policies have literally nothing to do with the crash. And well, uh, now, wait, uh, even but, even Barack Obama in his autobiography points to that as being one of the uh, the factors to that. You can't just throw that to the side. Well, and I, say I'm going to throw that to the side and say it had zero, zero, zero to do with the crash. And I think the strongest evidence of that is that um, the crash was identical for lenders to commercial real estate as to lenders to residential real estate. And none of the policies that you're talking about ever applied to commercial real estate. So you, so you, okay. I mean, you can have that position, but I think that tossing it aside when you have, you know, Obama, or as a matter of fact, you can even take a look at the investigative reporting of like the big short who would agree. Again, we wouldn't agree on everything there, but I don't think you can just quite say, well, that's just all hoke coming from straight from Trey. Oh, I thought you were talking about uh, policies like um, the um, Fair, Fair Lending Act and things like that. The Big Short doesn't talk about any of those kind of policies. No, 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 no. This is true. Um, so, so because I know a lot of right wingers are saying, well, it's because um, of laws that required uh, uh, banks to um, not redline neighborhoods and things like that. That that was the kind of policy. Oh that I no, I was talking about uh, in pumping additional money into the housing market, oh, and, and okay. then being surprised by those inflationary effects, and then the the, the coming bubble crash as a result of governmental well, policies that increase. So that's that's yeah. a smaller example of inflation. So I was trying okay. to use that as a smaller example of inflation. I was not trying to make any kind of those uh, okay, red line I'm, arguments. So I apologize okay, I'm, if I'm I was not clear about that. Policies. No, but the the the, uh, the the failure of the Bush administration to actually enforce bank regulation is what caused that crash in 2008. And the, the kind of complex derivatives that are written about um, in, in the big short, for instance, which you raised. Um, which again, you know, allowed the, for additional inflationary. T- continue, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm going to say it, it allowed for um, um, bubbles that would burst in the in the private sector that threatened to take down the whole financial system, um, which then left, um, uh, you know, because because the Bush administration never regulated the banks enough to make sure that they weren't taking um, um, illegal levels of risk that could bring them down and threaten the whole um, financial system. Um, then that meant that, um, you know, when when the bubble actually did burst, because these un- illegal levels of, of risk had actually been taken without um, regulators stepping in to stop it, then that that th- gave the government a, a binary choice, you know, so that towards the very end of Bush's own presidency, he was either going to preside over the complete collapse of the um, uh, um, financial system or he was going to infuse tons of taxpayer money into it. Mm-hmm. And certainly, certainly infusing tons of taxpayer money, money into it was the lesser evil there. I mean, you know, it may have been a little bit inflationary, but the alternative was um, probably worse than the Great Depression. 
No, but so but the the example here is is that so yeah, so for example with the banks, the banks are able to pump additional funds into a market can actually support it. It leads to inflationary housing prices. Those kinds of weird derivative bets uh, are ways that banks can mask the amount of money that's actually uh, occurring in the housing market. What you're talking, what, what the what the analogy here though is that when you pour money, and this is what banks were doing, into a closed system, you temporarily inflate prices and then end up having some kind of disastrous outcomes thereafter. I'm suggesting you're going to have, see similar kinds of things happen when you have uh, additional money pumped into the economy. Yeah, I don't think it's comparable to what happened in 2008, because all the problems that happened in 2008 were um, because of private sector choices. None of them were because of government choices. It's, it's that the government failed to regulate uh, private sector choices, and those, those private sector um, um, financial institutions uh, engage in reckless behavior with other people's money that nearly took down the financial system. It was really a failure of government action, um, whereas what you're talking about here is just um, government fiscal uh, policy. And um, I would say I, reckless fiscal. Policy, yeah, you could call, but... you could call it reckless, but it it, um, it it can't cause really the kinds of, of systemic harms that um, the, 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 the the banking crisis of 2008 caused. At most, it could cause something like what we're seeing right now, which is um, unusually high inflation. And, you know, kind of the, the worst case scenario here um, is not that the whole system falls apart, but just that um, inflation continues at five percent a year for a while. But I think there's there's no I would say comparatively, pre- though, when you take a look at comparative economic studies, you can't say that the worst case, is the five percent and it remains at five percent. Worst case is you see countries that move into much higher levels of inflation, double digits extended over periods of six months or more that have profound economic impacts. I think, again, you're kind of minimizing the potential risk. Well, uh, yeah, that, that would be that would be literally impossible in the United States because the the Federal Reserve System has the ability here to stop that kind of thing. And, you know, when we talked about Yellen before, her comments were made in the context of saying why she isn't at present going to exercise any of the powers that the Fed actually has um, to, to raise interest rates or to, or to regulate bank transactions um, that might rein in inflation because she's not yet worried about the inflation. Now, if you're talking about 10% levels, we're in a very different um, context in terms of monetary policy. And of course, the Fed would, would rein that in and they have many tools to do so. So that, that kind of thing is not a serious um, risk in the United States, I don't think. Well, why don't we, I think we have some space there. So why don't we move forward <laughs> to one last, <laughs> one last, because we're going long. Uh, we want to take a look at this past week uh, you know, of course, we did not get, Ken, any uh, real 9-11 style uh, investigation into the January 6th insurrection. But on Tuesday, two separate Senate committees released the most comprehensive government report yet on the security issues related to January 6th. Now, the focus in the documents are primarily on the shortcomings of the intelligence community and on its inability to predict amount of in-life action from online chatter. Now, there were a lot of compromises potentially made because these were, in fact, bipartisan reports. And in order for for the committee to report this, neither of them used the word insurrection, as I have done, for example, nor did it specifically look at any of the relationships uh, to the actions online or off and then offline 
to those taken of President Donald Trump at the time. Uh, but it did conclude that, quote, January 6, 2021 marked not only an attack on the Capitol building, it marked an attack on democracy. Quote. Aides would go on to note that the report did not attempt to look at those origins and the developments of the groups that participated in the, cap and the attack on the Capitol, end quote. Those are uh, anonymous aides. Now, the other thing that was, I, I don't know how much of, this, uh, of either of the reports that you uh, read, Ken, but in the appendix to both, uh, as I had read pieces of it, uh, rather large chunks of it, um, I, the first appendix, as a matter of fact, is Donald Trump's comments, his speech, if you will, um, prior uh, to the insurrection. And I was, again, just struck by his speech. I, you know, time and space has come between us, but kind of having... To read through it again, uh, seeing the number of times that he says American elections in the press are neither free nor fair, that we're a third world nation, uh, kind of struck me all anew. So we are not getting a Jan 6 commission, Ken, but what do you think the bipartisan report out of the Senate? Well, first, I have to confess, I only read the news reporting about the report. I have not had a chance to read the report. Um, so I'll just have to go by how it's been summarized um, in the news. Um, but um, you know, I think it's unfortunate uh, that the um, uh, commission um, or I'm sorry, that the, the Senate uh, committee uh, limited its, its inquiry um, to really the events of um, uh, that occurred at the Capitol and, and, and to the um, prior events that in, in as much as the um, information received um, in advance of that day by Capitol Police and, and et cetera, and did not look at all about the um, um, President Trump's role in fomenting all, all of this. Um, I, I guess it's going to lead to some um, immediate um, improvements in security uh, at the Capitol. And some, um, and some probably, communication sharing in a way that was not occurring. Yeah. yeah. So there would be some operational benefits uh, of this. But, um, you know, in some ways, it, it's just kind of like, um, you know, the fastball got thrown and, and the, this committee bunted, basically. Right. They, they just bunted it off and and didn't didn't want to dig deep into any of the important issues. Um, that's not surprising if, if, if the if the um, Senate committee, if the Senate can't even vote to form a bipartisan uh, um, January 6th commission, then you wouldn't expect them to, in a bipartisan way, bite off those same issues that the, that they don't want a commission to bite off. Um, so I guess what we're really left with here is that there's going to be um, partisan committees um, investigating um, through the, the ordinary process. It'll primarily happen in the House, I think. Um, so you'll have House committees where Democrats have working majority on the committees um, doing the, the primary investigations of, um, uh, of of the president's role and of the role of um, militia groups, I think, which is also significant um, in the, in the uh, um, events of January 6th. And we'll also probably wind up seeing a lot of public information developed about these issues in the hundreds of criminal cases. And even though a lot of these cr criminal cases are probably going to result in plea agreements, um, Certainly some of them are going to be tried and the, the trials are going to be public and information is going to come out in those. So I, I don't think this means the, the public is never going to learn more about um, the, the causes of what happened on January 6th. But it it is sort of pushing back that point in time when the public's going to learn more. You know, what I don't disagree. It, it is kind of unfortunate. I was surprised, though, uh, that the, the, the that given that there had to be such a, a narrow focus that in the conclusions they are willing to go to the to the point of saying that it marks an attack on democracy in a couple of different ways. Uh, so I, I was happy about that. Uh, and and I, I saw that as being something, 
Um, well, yeah, I mean, the only thing about that is um, I, I, I guess I see it as being less than than something because it's it, if you don't say who was behind the attack on democracy, then it does seem to be me to be an uncontroversial statement that, you know, literally everybody could agree with. Like even people like Senator Hawley um, or, or, or Trump who continue to say it was really Antifa that was behind all that. You know, they would agree that it was an attack on democracy. So I think with, without assigning any responsibility, that's a pretty anodyne statement um, uh, that, that it would be hard for anyone to disagree with. Maybe. I mean, I don't hear Trump and some of those using quite that rhetoric. But, you know, you make a valid point there. Um, I, w- I was still a little surprised that it found it. And I didn't think that there would be quite agreement even to that level. So but no, your point, your point is fair and valid. The one last thing I'd like to think of, uh, kind of just, I was curious about, you know, reading it again, you know, oftentimes we kind of keep speeches and thing, you know, going to Kennedy's, we're going to, we're going to go to space, not because it's easy, because we want to do the hard things and the other hard things, um, you know, or FDRs, we're not going to be afraid of anything but fear. We have these kind of big moments for presidential speeches that kind of live on and live forward and mark moments and in some ways, I almost want the the Trump speech to live on, but in a different kind of way. You know, again, it struck me anew. And I wonder, I, I wonder how important it will be to continue to make sure that that is something that doesn't just die, um, even though it's wrong, you know, not, not in a celebratory way, but rather in a caution or cautionary tale kind of way. Uh, what do you think about that? That a little bit. I, I, that had been rolling in my mind the last few days after having read the the report. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you know, there are some notorious speeches that that live on in American public memory. I could think of, you know, Judge uh, uh, Governor um, uh, George Wallace, his speech, you know, segregation True. now, segregation forever. <laughs> yeah, you know, and uh, um, you know, people haven't totally forgotten that. Um, uh, and so maybe maybe this will join that pantheon. Um, um, I, I think it it um, it, it will um, you, you know the, the the very slowness of what's happening in Congress right now, in some ways, does work um, towards um, keeping these issues alive. It doesn't really kill them, right? Because as long as Congress fails to to come up with a comprehensive uh, report, fails to come up with a bipartisan committee, um, it just means that um, investigations are going to continue in a more random and haphazard and ad hoc type way through criminal cases or through partisan committees. So I think we'll keep hearing about this. Also, um, you know, it, it is possible, although I don't really think it'll happen, that, that Trump will run for president again in 2024. And if he even um, enters the primaries, then I think that speech that you're talking about is going to appear in a lot of political ads that people are going to see on television, you know, primarily from his opponents. Although who knows, maybe he would put them in too. And <laughs> benefit. So I, I, think, I, yeah, I think that, I think, I, I think that at least in, in um, um, near term memory, it'll probably stay alive. And, and I actually, I got to think it's going to make the history books. I mean, it's hard to predict, you know, what people are going to be studying in high schools 50 or a hundred years from now. But, you know, we, we still study um, the shots that were fired at um, uh, at Fort Sumter, you know, in uh, 1861. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, this may end up uh, looming as large as that in, in, in future studies. Well, Ken, it, as always, it's a lot of fun doing the show with you. I hope you had fun, too. Yeah, of course. And listeners, I hope you guys have had fun as well. And I just want to thank you to listening to the politics, guys. I know that Ken and myself, we love doing this show. We wouldn't be doing it otherwise. 
Uh, and one of the ways that this podcast is possible is through the support of listeners like you. One of the ways you can help the show is by subscribing to the Politics Guys on the app of your choice, so to sharing episodes, uh, but also, of course, being a supporter. Uh, we One of the great things about being a supporter is you're going to get supporters-only content. So, for example, this week, Ken and I did not... There were so many things last week. Uh, we cut a number of stuff off. As a matter of fact, just a few things. One of the things that we wanted to talk about was Biden's... Um, Department of Justice adopting Trump's liability stance. We're going to be having to do that on the bonus show. So if you'd like to join us for that kind of lost uh, bit, we're going to do that. We're going to be talking about uh, the lawsuit against Arkansas uh, trooper flipping a pregnant woman's car, uh, and then some news with the attorney general in Ken's own hometown of Ohio, and more. We're even head over to Israel. So if you're interested in any of that or any of the amazing things that we do for our uh, uh, supporters-only show, Every week, we have a full-length supporters-only Wednesday show. And this week, of course, is going to include those items that I've just mentioned and many others. So we also have a supporters-only Discord channel. It's a place where you can chat with me or Mike or now as a result of supporters, just incredible support. Ken, uh, supporters get access to Discord. So if you want to become a supporter, if you'd like to join us again for our Wednesday show, or if you'd like to be with us online on Discord, uh, all you have to do to check out even more of the benefits of supporting the politics guys is check out our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash politics guys. Or you can go over to politicsguys.com slash support. Again, it's patreon.com slash politics guys or politicsguys.com slash support. Join myself and Ken again on Wednesday by heading to patreon.com slash politics guys. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you'd like to share with us, you can always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Will Moreno, Andra Masker, Nathan Sosnowski, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkinson, and Ryan Beasley. Today's show was produced by myself, Trey Orndorff. I hope you'll join us next time.